listener production. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. Well, buckle in, because next week in Cannes may see the marketing, advertising, media and tech sectors return from a week unpacking the best work in the world with their collective tails wagging a whole lot less than they would have hoped. Three leading global authorities on advertising effectiveness are worried enough about the efficacy of advertising and the impact it has on business results that they have joined forces to present new data and observations on why a triple jeopardy threat is a clear and present danger to the global industry. They go so far as to even call for an overhaul in how advertising award shows like Cannes need to reward the work. I suspect it's going to get spicy. Advertising effectiveness supremo Peter Field, attention economy pioneer Karen Nelsonfield and creativity maestro Orlando Wood will make their case next Monday together in Cannes for why ad effectiveness, ESOV and mental availability created by advertising for a brand is crumbling. Historically, of course, these advertising principles meant consumers were more likely to remember and choose one product or service over another and therefore drive a brand's market share growth and contribution to the business. And yes, even the long-held and widely accepted notion of ESOV, that is, spending more than your rivals to gain extra share of advertising voice relative to a brand's actual market share in order to outpace competitor sales, is also in deep trouble. So much so that WARC and the UK's Institute of Practitioners in Advertising, the IPA, is digging deep into this triple jeopardy warning from the triplets of advertising effectiveness. See what I did there. Now, we've got these three global authorities on the mics today for a sneak peek on what is sure to trigger a rocking and probably polarising debate next week in Cannes, and MI3 will be on the ground to observe the aftershocks. So enough from me, let's hear from the smart people. Welcome, Peter, Karen and Orlando. To Peter, you first. There seems to be trouble in paradise. It sounds like a decade of work you've been working on, Peter, that argues that longer-term investment in brand advertising versus shorter-term marketing performance tactics for business impact is in a bit of trouble. Or is that just a journo like me um, on the hunt for a beat-up? Peter, welcome. And how about you explain what dark clouds are swirling and, and why? Hi, Paul. Well, I mean, in a sense, you're right. I've been banging on about this for 10 years. But the, the interesting thing, and I should explain really why the three of us have come together on this, because I think this is, for me, it's been a great privilege and a real eye-opener to work with Orlando and Karen. But, you know, I've been working, banging on for 10 years about how what I've just described loosely as short-termism seems to be impacting effectiveness. And, you know, one of my big themes has been we've been diverting money out of what we would want, what we tend to call brand-building advertising, that is, advertising designed to increase the mental availability of brands and therefore drive long-term effectiveness. We've been pulling money out of that ever more, putting it into performance marketing and other kind of short-term tools and tactics. And, and we can see that in the data. There's been a massive shift to that. But you know what? I've always had a slight kind of uh, problem with that because you can't explain the full scale of what's been going on when you look at the effectiveness data uh, over the last 10 years. You can't explain it all just by that simple observation. A lot of money shifted out of brand building, but there's still been a fair amount in there. And that's where Karen and Orlando come in, really, because they 
kind of filled the gaps in my understanding. So Orlando's been looking at, you know, how the creative work has changed as a result of, you know, everything that the performance marketing short-term mindset has, has imposed on the world of advertising. And Karen has obviously done enormous amounts of work on how different platforms can support uh, attention levels by the advertising that we choose to place on them, support or indeed undermine. And her work has been um, revelatory to me, just the sheer scale of difference. So we've got now additional levels of detail on why it is that things have kind of been uh, going a bit awry. Um, And we all felt it was just time to pull these three strands together. They're all part of the explanation. They all work together to uh, undermine effectiveness. And where better to launch our piece than can, frankly, where, you know, many of the best marketing and creative uh, and media brains these days all come together. We're going to try and set this up as what we call triple jeopardy. You know, Karen's idea, we think it's a very, we think it's a very witty and appropriate name for what we're talking about because there are definitely three strands to jeopardy. We're going to unpack what those are. We're going to talk about the scale of the problem. And of course, we're going to talk an awful lot about how we solve these. And I'll be obviously handing over to my much more expert colleagues here to talk about the detail of, you know, how you get around these things. I'm just going to be, you know, the niggly, curmudgeonly old, you know, kind of whatnot in the background saying, you've all got to do something. Um, <laughs> and I'll leave it to the others to um, to try and sort it all out. But there's lots we can be doing. Uh, and uh, Karen Orlando, full of fantastic ideas. Um, so we hope to leave it on an, on an upbeat note at the very end um, with lots of uh, action. You do think there's a fix, Peter. You all think there's a fix at some stage, um, despite once we outline and hear, mostly next week, what the issues are, there is a way to fix this. So we'll get to that as well. Um, Just out of interest, maybe for the uninitiated, triple jeopardy. Double jeopardy is obviously in in the marketing context, comes out of Ehrenberg Bass and sort of some marketing science and stuff that's long been around. Just maybe explain then the triple jeopardy that you're talking about and the three of you, what all that means. And what is the problem, Peter, at a top line? What is the problem? I'm not going to go into detail now, A, because it's not my bag, it's Karen Orlando's bag mostly, Um, uh, but also, obviously, we're going to be talking about this uh, at Cannes, and we'd like our audience to have something new to hear. But, I mean, essentially, triple jeopardy is three things. The withdrawal of money from brand and putting it into performance marketing and other short term on a massive scale, so that's drained the mental availability uh, fuel supply, if you like. There is Karen's piece, which is all about how we simply are not taking account of the different levels of attention that different particularly digital platforms generate. So we've been buying impressions as if one impression on platform A um, is the same as an impression on platform B has the same value. And that is what has broken down in the digital era because, you know, we simply haven't, until Karen came along at least, had any way of valuing these different impressions on different platforms. You know, and they get, we know um, from the work that she's published in recent years, they have radically different levels of impact, duration of viewing, pixels on the screen, and just these levels of attention that they get anyway. So all of that is a huge area where the money hasn't been chasing the mental availability, frankly. Um, so Karen's an expert on all of that. And Orlando has uncovered some truly astonishing kind of changes, which, which, you know, certainly I hadn't noticed in the very nature of creative work on a huge scale as, you know, what I would call performance think has permeated the creative corridors of agencies and just made creative people write different kinds of ads because that's what everyone's been beating them up to do 
uh, for the last 10 or 12 years. And those are the three jeopardies. It's to do with the budget going into mental availability due to the media platforms that support or don't support it, and the very nature of the creative work that either does or does not build mental availability strongly. Three jeopardies, and that's what it's all about. Is this notion of share of voice and advertising share of voice and even ESOV, which I think you fronted a a report from the Ad Council in Australia last year on this, but is that being challenged then, this notion that if you spend more than your competitors in advertising, there is an impact on market share essentially, or ESOV as an extra share of voice. Is that being challenged in your view, Peter, at the moment? It's more the metrics, which are we're not challenging the fundamental principle that um, the more of an impact you have through the advertising money you spend, the bigger the impact you will have on mental availability and therefore the bigger impact you have on growth. That to us seems set in stone. There is no challenge there. The problem we're finding is that the metrics are fundamentally flawed. And there is, uh, you know, once upon a time, the market knew that a a dollar spent on, say, TV had a different value to a dollar spent perhaps on on outdoor in the sense of the, the impressions that each impression it created. But the market adjusted that with the cost of these things. So at the end of the day, you know, a dollar spent on any medium kind of more or less evened out. So we had this nice general relationship between share of voice and share of market, between extra share of voice and growth in share of market. And the world was peaceful and everything was good. And John Philip Jones, you know, formalised this 30 years ago and it's been a very, very, very strong relationship. But of course it's breaking down. Karen's work, um, more than anyone else's, um, highlights why that is. It's simply because the money hasn't been chasing the uh, attention in the way that it once did, because the market used to be able to take account of all of these differences. And that has, you know, that sure has broken down. And, and that's one of my contributions to this piece is just to look at the trend data over time to see how that relationship has weakened. But of course, this is fixable. You know, if we if we look for the new metrics, which Karen advocates, and I should stop racking on and hand over to Karen and Orlando, really, shouldn't I? Because I keep asking you questions, Peter. Yeah, so say you, something. When someone asks you a question, you've got to answer it. <laughs> You're doing a wonderful job. Doing a wonderful job. <laughs> well, if you look at Karen's work, you can immediately see two things. One, why the metric is breaking down, you know, why it is that we're not seeing the same really strong relationship between ESOV and growth that that John Philip Jones um, established all those years ago. But also you can see why there is a fix waiting in the wings that Karen is is very much about um, and why we need to do it. Mm. But I mean, I should also say from from the perspective of Orlando's work as well, that, you know, there is greater uncertainty and greater variability in the ability when we do invest in brand building on good platforms is greater uncertainty and variability in that the impact of that on mental availability and therefore growth because of what's been going on in creativity as well so these are both playing just to you know randomize the whole thing where it once was much much more generalizable and, and um, clear cut than it used to be so we've got to fix it we've got to fix yeah. it and that's what we're going to be in can trying to do well, exactly i guess that's why we're going to have to show up and listen to the full presentation which i will be there for in in terms of that notion you talk about of the shift in media and the type of media and the type of impressions that are working for mental availability or building it, do you think the marketers and advertising professionals, how widespread is that understanding? Do you think they get that or this is the problem they haven't quite understood that there is a shift going on in the media impact, the quality of attention, if you like, for advertising by, by a media platform? 
What I think comes out of the data is that the blue chip marketers, the ones that Karen gets to speak to, the ones that Orlando get to speak to, they are getting this now a big time. And we so we see in the kind of data I look at, which is IPA effectiveness data, these tend to be, you know, the smarter advertisers out there, the ones who are, you know, keep abreast of these kinds of developments. There is, for the first time in the, the latest data that I've looked at, which is from 2020, the first signs of, of some improvement. We can't be sure exactly where it's coming from, but there is a definite uptick in effectiveness metrics. And there seems to be some corrective action, both in media and creative terms. But what we know from both Karen and Orlando's work is that that is not a general finding. It may be true in the narrow world of smart blue chip advertisers that I tend to look at, but I don't think my money's on it being a broad and general trend in the in the big wide world of advertising and marketing. So, you know, we've got a lot of work to do. We've got some some good best practice that we can spread and, um, and ripple it out, hopefully. And like I say, can is a great place to try and do that. In the conversations you're having with brands and marketers in the last six months, how would you define or describe the sort of conversation you're having with them? What are they asking of you? What is top of mind for them in trying to improve what they're doing with their marketing activities in relation to the conversations you're having with them, at least. I still have, you know, a decade on a lot of conversations with a lot of marketers about, you know, how an over-focus on short-termism plays out. And I get brought into a lot of companies to try and talk their people through this because, you know, I think often what you've got is you've got um, more experienced, more senior CMOs, but they've got teams of people who are digital natives, only ever worked in the world of digital and they need to be helped through all of this because you know their their understanding has all been about you know, what digital platforms do and particularly short-term thinking so yeah i get a lot of it there is a big understanding growing understanding i think at um, at the c-suite level that there's something to be done about but it's about training people it's about spreading it perhaps cfos need a little bit more encouragement along here but again my experience is they get it if you give them an evidence-based argument. So, you know, I think there is a growing understanding at the more sophisticated end of marketing that um, certainly I pick up that uh, understands the problem, knows it needs to be fixed. Um, so it will get fixed. We just seen it was done sooner rather than later. And just to your point, you don't seem to have a problem in the conversation with finance teams about this once it's unpacked for them. No, but you've got to get a chance to get in front of them. And, um, you know, that's that's the problem. So a lot of the work I do is, is has been with CMOs just kind of coming in and presenting to the C-suite. So this is, you know, again, I think this is a good opportunity just to get this out there mm. and try and get, um, get it more widely known. Right. Karen Nelson-Field, Triple Jeopardy. Let's just start at Double Jeopardy first. And for those that may not be quite across what Double Jeopardy is in a marketing context, how about you tell us that? And then we'll get to the Triple Jeopardy and then we'll get to well, what are you going to talk about in can and propose to the industry about how they could do things better? Sure. I mean, you sort of mentioned it earlier. I mean, Andrew Ehrenberg was an amazing statistician who I think for over half a century contributed to marketing literature on systematic patterns in buyer behaviour. And his work on double jeopardy basically is this concept of, well, I kind of calling, calling double punishment where it describes the relationship of brand loyalty and the size of a brand's customer base. So, for example, where small brands not only have fewer customers who buy them, but these customers are also less loyal. So smaller brands are hit twice or big brands kind of are positively endowed in that way. So the, the concept of double punishment is 
what we sort of thought would be funny for the three of us to sort of come up and talk about, but there's three of us. So to Peter's point, you know, we're sort of making it a bit funny and, and sort of extending it beyond the the. Well, you're being a bit creative. Yeah, we're being a bit creative. Funny but, that for But Karen. the reality is what, what Pete said was true, and that is that the things that we each talk about have a complex interrelationship um, and sort of this constant cycle between them. So what he talks about with mental availability is affected by what I talk about, which is the the lack of, I guess, people understanding the how much a, um, a platform actually impacts attention and, you know, what essentially lack of attention does to one's advertising efforts. And then obviously um, Orlando comes in and talks about, you know, apart from the fact that I know that even good creative is impacted by platform performance, then within that and within those boundaries, you know, creative isn't quite working the way it used to. So there's this triple jeopardy, if you like. So, yeah, so it's going to be a bit of fun and there's some new news and uh, I'm quite excited about it. Your thinking and your work is obviously expanding pretty quickly and being understood or uh, people are coming across it fairly quickly. But in a nutshell, Karen, your thesis is that attention is governed by the type of platform you're on. It's essentially, in a layman's term like myself, is encapsulated. Take it on and what you're going to talk to the can crowd about on that front. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, the last few months alone have been even more exciting for us because, you know, we've moved on now from finding new findings and now we see systematic sameness every single time. So we've started to I've started to see mathematical patterns in in the research that we do. And when that happens, then you can start to sort of build outwards from there and you can, you know, build prediction and, you know, you know what to expect and you can make change. So so for me, it's kind of coming to a head five years of work on this thing called attention and, you know, being able to see interesting double jeopardy patterns across the board in the data that we've had so far will add some value to what these guys are talking about. So being able to sort of think through how creative might fit within the things that we've learned and we don't expect that to change um, will only help brands. So, you know, if I'm picking Peter's cues on this, essentially the argument goes in relation to you that digital media has not been delivering like legacy media has in the ability to drive mental availability for a brand, i.e. consideration and top of mind and beyond. Am I getting that right or am I misconstruing? And I'm sure you're about to correct me. I can tell. <laughs> Look, I don't talk about digital versus legacy. It's largely to do with the functionality of the platform. So, you know, there are some legacy platforms that aren't fantastic and there are some digital platforms that are. So I think it's more about where people have put their money today and being able to understand the nuances, not just at the platform level, but within the formats. But essentially, I think we have been largely misguided, you know, for the last several years, possibly 10, but it is starting to correct itself. And I think it's not to say they don't, it's just to say that, you know, the time that we're looking at this relationship, it's... um. It's been affected. So mental availability has been affected by the choices that people have made around the platforms that they they buy against. Yes. And so what is example? Let's throw an anecdote up there between platforms. You don't have to name the platforms because I'm assuming that that's no-go zone for me as much as I'd love you to. But a te- platform A versus platform B, what is the difference in attention and what is the knock-on effect for impact, business impact, mental availability, et cetera? Give us a, a delta. Give us a scenario. 
Yeah, I'm not going to tell you who, but what what I will say Damn. is it's not as simple as that. So I don't know if you've read any sort of of the papers that I've written more recently, but um, we're actually looking deeper. So human data, so humans actually react quite uniquely, no surprises. So what we're actually seeing, even within platform A, which may actually not drive mental availability typically, there are little pockets of human behaviour. So while the platform defines the level of um, how humans generally behave, different age groups, different types of people kind of do behave a little bit differently. So even within platform A, where it typically doesn't drive mental availability because, to your point, it doesn't get a lot of attention, there are sort of pockets within that. So the piece for us is to sort of move beyond platform A versus platform B and look for humans that pay attention and, you know, different outcomes that we can kind of model against. I'm assuming some more revelations will happen in the presentation. I'll have to show up to hear the numbers and what platform Y is and what platform X is. Would that be true? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. No, maybe not. Okay. Well, I will stop trying to get you to name platforms, but it is essentially fundamentally important, right? This is what the market has been missing, that there are really, really significant and important differences in the levels of attention people pay to advertising based on the platform and based on to your point, the sorts of humans they are within that platform. Yeah, what I'll talk about is the characteristics that make for good or bad attention, and then you can you can add them up yourself. <laughs> okay, look forward to that bit of maths. Orlando, let's, because this is the other, it gets very interesting now because, you know, in talking around attention and talking about the long and short of it and so forth, what tends to come up in the conversations I have is that, ah, oh, but creative can change all that. Creativity can cut across all those those sort of, media choice decisions because it will carry and hit people with the message you want. But you're seeing some problems with that too. Creativity has, to Peter's point earlier, it's changed in the way that it's doing its work and maybe not for the better. Absolutely. I mean, we've seen some quite dramatic shifts, I think, in creative style in the last 10, 15 years. So even in the last five, I think, we've seen some pretty dramatic changes that are making advertising less enjoyable, less watchable, frankly, and not the sort of advertising, by and large, that puts your brand into long-term memory that means that you are the first and obvious brand to come to mind when you're thinking about a particular category or purchase. And the sort of advertising we've been creating is advertising that looks and feels very different, that is full of short, sharp cuts. It's very mechanistic. It has words on the screen. If people are shown, only bits of them are shown, you know, or you see them staring at you down the barrel of the lens of the camera. And all of this kind of advertising, which, by the way, I think goes hand in hand with a a massive cultural shift at the same time that we've seen, is pushing people away. It causes people to detach from the work and it certainly doesn't create the three things that I think are important for brand building advertising. And that's fame, so salience, the ability to bring the brand to mind, to leap above any other from the Latin salire to leap. Uh, feeling, uh, affect, the affect heuristic, which uh, feeling helps us to It helps orientate our attention, but it also helps to put things in long-term memory and to make one choice more obvious than another. 
uh, and fluency, so distinctiveness uh, of of the work involved. And uh, we, we've moved away from the sort of campaigns, well, we've moved away from campaigns, you might say, we've moved away from the sort of campaigns that um, have characters, that have the living in them, that use music, that, you know, have um, a clear place, actually. You know, I talk about the importance of character, incident and place, how these things, they orientate our attention, but more than that, they put things into long-term memory and they, they help us to think of a particular brand, you know, many, many years to come, you know, when we might be in the buying window for that, for that kind of product or service. So, yes, we've seen big changes. Mm. And I think what I'm going to do is talk about the nature of attention, in, in my view, and how it has narrowed in this digital age and how the kind of work we're creating is really very close up, you know, so you see uh, the product really in your face. I mean, it's quite stressful to watch that kind of advertising, actually, or anything that close up for too long. You think about the lives we live, live you know, where we're all looking at our phones, you know, within a few inches of our nose. And that kind of close-upness, that, that sort of narrowing, that, that sort of focused attention is showing in the work. And it's not the kind of work that builds mental availability. Just um, on that point where you talked earlier, Orlando, about the cultural shift, is that the sort of the declining levels of attention we have or are you talking about something different when you talk about the cultural shift that we've been facing? Well, I, I, yes, I mean, any, anyone who is um, vaguely familiar with my work and the books my, with the IPA, Lemon and Lookout, will know that I draw on the work of a psychiatrist, neuroscientist, uh, philosopher really called Ian McGilchrist, who talks about the nature of attention and the two hemispheres of the brain and how the right hemisphere is very broad and vigilant in its attention. It grounds us in the world and the people in it, helps us responsible for sustained attention and alert to stuff that's out there at the edge of our awareness, you know, just slightly off stage, if you like. And it's this right hemisphere that presents the world to us. And it passes things over to the left hemisphere for this focused attention to be brought to bear, this narrow beam attention. So, you know, what you find is that, that the kind of advertising that creates and establishes great brands is understands the nature of this right, intuitively, understands the nature of the right brain, which understands, the, understands metaphor, understands humour, uh, understands music, all the things really that create great brands that alert us to the advertising, to the, to the work itself, and to, therefore to the brand. And yet we've been doing less and less of that, and we've been creating it for this narrow beam attention, which is what the left hemisphere is all about. And that's the sort of very close-up nature of, of, of advertising and looking at things, you know, really in a fascination for, for things over people, the word, the written word, mechanistic kind of advertising that. Um, that is of no interest to the right hemisphere of the brain. And so if you're trying to talk to people who may not be in your category yet, you know, you can't assume that they're going to be interested in this left brain advertising. You have to create advertising for the right brain that assumes no inherent interest in it, but that instead creates interest in that brand and in that product. And that means advertising, by and large, that involves the living, doing interesting things in a definable place. Not always, but mostly those are the sorts of things that capture our attention. 
and elicit an emotional response, put things into long-term memory. This change in creative tone and treatment that you're talking about, I assume it is, I'm about to ask why you think that is, but I'm assuming it's linked to what Peter and Karen have said earlier about the sort of the broader shift that's going on. Marketers are out of step here, or brands are out of step, essentially. I think, you know, uh, you look at, because I've looked at advertising over the last 30 years or so and how it's changed. But I've looked at other data too. I've looked at how the nature of films is changing. You know, we're making fewer romances and comedies. We're making more horror and thriller films. Music has changed and become more repetitive. Uh, You know, you look at the type of humour, look at humour and it's just disappearing. There are various cultural things that are happening which are consistent with the left brain's preferences. And so we're becoming very transactional, very rigid, very linear in the way that we think. And I think when you look back at history and other times in history, look back 100 years to, you know, the avant-garde artists at the time, which have much in common with today's advertising, and you look back at the printing presses of, you know, the late 15th century, and look at how art and things changed around the time of the Reformation, you're seeing very similar changes in culture today, and of course, advertising draws on culture and feeds culture. And, um, you know, it, very consistent with some of those earlier periods and the artwork of those earlier periods. And so it is a cultural shift that we're going through, no doubt about it, in my view. And the advertising is reflecting it, a very transactional, brittle, rigid way of, of doing work. Now, Karen, I may transgress here. I'm sure I'll be pulled up. But in terms of your view on how creative and creativity works and its role, platform is more important than the creative initially, that the sort of platform drives the early attention and creative perhaps holds it. Am I completely warping your worldview on this? Oh, no. Look, so I just did this thing about chicken and egg, right? And, you know, this argument goes around and around and around, but we see consistently that the platform is the principal driver of how much attention someone will largely pay to a creative. That doesn't mean that good and cre- good and bad creative don't fit within that, but it's rare that it sits outside those boundaries. So there's this thing called attention elasticity that we've looked at and, and basically lower performing platforms or formats have tighter bounds. So it's harder for the creative to jump outside of that because of high scroll or all those sorts of things. Whereas there are other platforms that, you know, have uh, less distracting features that the the opportunity for creative is much bigger. So the the upper bound is much greater and therefore good creative can shine more. But for it to deviate outside those boundaries is pretty rare, but it happens like it always does. So I don't I don't say creative doesn't play a role, um, but you can't have an amazing creative and not show anyone and expect it to work, but you can have, you know, the platform piece is is the, the, the first point of call. There's like a decision tree that we use around how ads work with attention um, and creative is in there, but it just, like I said, you can have an amazing piece or a Khan Lion winner, award-winning piece of humorous creative, but if no one gets to see it, it's it's not going to be effective. So it's not just about holding attention. That's actually hard to do as well. It's more about getting just a tiny little bit more in the upper bounds of what a platform gives you and then on top of that leading it to a sale. Peter Orlando, can you palette that? Doesn't this challenge the sort of the creative orthodoxy of the last, I don't know, 20, 30 years of the role that creativity and good creative serves? Karen's essentially saying yes, but it can't bust out of platform-based, you know, boundaries. 
Well, I mean, not not really. I mean, I used to I used to work with um, a media director who described his job as um, ensuring that the creative director's work shone and was widely seen, and that's how he defined it. So he knew all along. And I think in the days when ad agencies were integrated media and creative agencies, there was an interplay and an understanding that you know you had to get the right media the right make the right media choices for the kind of creative um, ideas and messages that were there and they always worked together so i don't think we're fundamentally challenging the orthodoxy i think what what karen's work has done is pointed out just how extraordinarily wide those differences are you know i think perhaps we kidded ourselves in the early days of social when virality was easier we felt that if you came up with a great idea you know it was just going to fly and and in the early days of social that was much easier before you know the monetizing algo machine fully got going and the tanks started rolling across cmo's lawns on this one so in the early days perhaps it was more true that a great creative idea could fly um, digitally. But that's certainly not true now, as Karen's work says, unless we make the right platform. So I don't think um I don't think we've fundamentally changed the orthodoxy. It's just been brought rather sharply home to us the extent to which we can screw up a great piece of creativity if we bung it on the wrong um, on the wrong uh, platforms. Orlando, your thoughts? And I would say that the work that we're creating today, but I mean, if you just look at television advertising, that has been influenced, I think, hugely by the advent of digital platforms. The kind of work that we're seeing increasingly on television, which is a broad reach medium, which, you know, is, is perfect for capturing broad beam attention. It looks very much like a lot of the digital advertising that you see at online video on online platforms that has been you know, establishing itself over the last 10, 15 years. And that's not really the kind of, that's not really the way that that, that television advertising works at its best, in fact. So you've got to, you see it within platform too, these creative changes. And uh, I think it's time to kind of try and reverse that a bit. Karen, you've, you've got a thought. I do. I mean, you talked about 20 to 30 years. And I'm not saying, and I, you know, I'm not getting into the legacy versus digital but I did say that there are some platforms that have wider creative opportunities, like wider creative bounds. That means that the highest amount of attention compared to the lowest amount of attention paid by any one individual is broad. Which ones are those? <laughs> You're just <laughs> relentless. But um, so I'm just saying, you know, it's changed because of basically what Pete said is that, and that is a lot to do, you know, you couldn't scroll on TV when I was a kid just saying, I don't know if you ever could when you were a kid, but you couldn't. But so those, no, no. <laughs> those sorts of features. Not that old, young. <laughs> those sorts of features have changed the nature, the fundamental nature of the opportunity for creative to shine. That's as simple as it is. And interestingly, Pete, um, I hear you talk about um, early days in the viral, but it was that's a that's a misnomer. I mean, my first book was on how uh, content diffused, and uh, it was a bit of a myth, to be honest, to to think that. If you built it, they would share. It was the other way around. The ones that were getting the big viral data were people like Dove who were spending a fortune on seeding. So it's still about reach. It was money. It was still paid. It was yeah. paid distribution. Yeah, absolutely yeah. right. And but I think it always did require both. It required money to kind of idea. seed it and, and it required a, a, an inherently viral idea. And, you know, and there, were, there were some examples that kind of punched out of that. But I think there was a clearer 
sense in those days of how you kind of needed both and that getting the right creative could make perhaps a bigger difference than it is sometimes allowed to on platforms these days. I don't know, this is not my area of expertise, but I think back in the early days, uh, so long as you put some money behind your ideas, they did seem to fly better on social than they do now. Oh, I mentioned a word, Karen. I'm very sorry. <laughs> to mention the word and, social. and it's interesting because, you know, <laughs> the, the numbers are still high. Like you might get 50% more attention, but when the base is low, that's not great. So that's what we're dealing with. So can I ask, Peter, your presentation, the three of you, the triplets presentation, the triple jeopardy jeopardizers, oof, that doesn't sound too good. Um, how uncomfortable will it make at least some parts of the industry feel or respond? Well, we're not, we're not, in a sense, trying to make people uncomfortable. I think, you know, what we're doing is we're rewarding the people who are getting it right and we are trying to direct the people who we don't think are getting it right. I don't think there's any reason uh, particularly why anyone should feel uncomfortable. Maybe some of the creative judges that can might feel a little uncomfortable at some of Orlando's observations about great creativity. Uh, I don't think there's any real reason why people should be wildly uncomfortable. I'm sure a lot of people in creative and media would support um, what we're saying and hopefully will take the kind of evidence that we're presenting here as useful to them um, and to help them advance the cause. Um, I suspect that an awful lot of this thinking, you know, as I say, it is in a sense come from the performance marketing world they may feel a little uncomfortable with what we're saying because, in a sense, it's performance think that has been driving all of all of this, and it's and we're certainly trying to to redial performance think back to something that's a little bit more balanced, where we understand how to build long term mental availability, and that you don't do that through the narrow strictures of what works best in performance marketing. So I suppose yes, the only people who I suspect might feel slightly miffed with us might be the diehard performance marketers, but we're never going to please them. They think this whole brand world is a load of tosh, frankly, um, and that there is nothing that a timely and relevantly served promotional message at the 11th hour of decision-making can't achieve. And that, of course, is totally flawed. And if we piss a few of them off, then so be it. But most of the marketing world is much, much more sophisticated and understanding than that, and I think gets what we're trying to say, but hopefully we'll, we'll want and need our evidence to help them bring life forward. And we're going to bring solutions, right? Well, actually, I was going to say, Karen, before we get to a sort of a tease on what the fix looks like, I did just want to ask Orlando one quick question around what an award show should look like, should be rewarding, Orlando. What should can re be rewarding? And hopefully that gets you in some hot coals because I'd like to see that. Yes, I, I think the nature of the work that's been awarded has changed um, quite a lot in the last 10 years. And in fact, I look at this in my book, Look Out, you know, humorous campaigns, for instance, are no longer given the same sort of awards that, uh, that they once were. And, you know, I think that the sort of advertising that is, that is popular amongst the general public, we don't see... It seems quite narrow uh, to me in, in both in its conception and its and the sort of tension that it's designed for. So I think there's a lot. I'm not going to talk too much about this on the day, but I think there's you know if you re read my books, you'll see that there's been quite a move towards a different kind, a different style of advertising, and we probably need to think more about advertising as a medium to entertain people. 
entertainment is hugely important in long-term effectiveness, lasting effects. And, you know, it's like putting on a show. And we're not putting on a show in the same way that we once were, I don't think. I think we're probably, you know, telling people what to think. And I think we need to put on a show, a show that entertains people, that's full of human vitality, that's full of wit and charm, because that's the kind of advertising, you know, advertising also that that respects its audience and that wants, you know, that doesn't seek to shock. You know, David Abbott's various people said things along these lines that, you know, you shouldn't be outrageous. You need to be plucky, but not outrageous. And I think we're treading a fine line at the moment. I think we need to get back to the notion of entertaining people. So, Paul, I'm sure in the Q&A, and certainly we hope in the Q&A, we're going to get lots more of these punchy questions and we'll be able to open up a bit more of a discussion at the back end of our presentation about, you know, what can can be doing to um, uh, uh, support the kind of uh, findings that we are... Um, coming out with so we hope we hope to have a really good chat at the back end of the conversation the back end of the presentation uh, and try and advance you know a bit more in that as well look forward to it so final question karen you dob yourself in there with the fix so what is this just give us a sense a tease on what the solution might look like uh, that we'll hear from you three next week on well you I can tell us it all if you like but <laughs> i can't do that you won't turn up Look, I think that the outcome will be that we want to reverse the triple jeopardy. We want to kind of reverse the triple penalty and make it, you know, into things, three things again, essentially that you can do to reverse the trend because I think you can and I think you can work. I mean, each of our work, you can tell, you can can see that there is an improvement and the three will work together. So let me just say we're going to leave you with three optimistic outcomes. Great. Well, I'm sufficiently intrigued, sufficiently teased. I haven't got the answers I look for, so that's another week away. Look forward to it. Peter Field, Karen Nelson Field, Orlando Wood. Great conversation. Really interesting tease. Look forward to hearing it all unveiled next week. Thanks for joining. Stay safe till then. This MI3 audio edition was presented by Paul McIntyre. That's more. Producer Nick Slater. Music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to listener.com or download the Listener app and search MI3 Audio Edition to listen for free. Listener.